Well, take your Bibles and let's look back to Matthew chapter 1, that along with your handout today. Uh, you'll be able to follow along with all that I'm going to share, at least I'm intending to share. Now, Matthew is summarizing the birth of Christ in a single verse. Now, I read multiple verses to you, but really the summary is found in verse 18. In that one verse, it's shocking the amount of truth that is communicated the depth of truth that is available to us right there. From eternity past, the triune God planned every detail of the nativity. And from the first chapters of Genesis and all the way through to Revelation and the prophet's words in between, God has been revealing to us the hope of Christmas. All of history was moving to that one day when God took on flesh, born Right here among us, God incarnate to save people from their sins. Matthew says it so succinctly. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I want us, Meadowbrook, to hear and read the Christmas message with an everlasting eagerness and excitement. When we hear verses like, um, she shall bear a son and he will save you from your sins, it, it ought to create in us uh, a longing to know more, a depth of, of understanding. So Matthew is making this very simple statement, but it's really a profound truth, isn't it? The grandest event of all of history, second only to the creation of the world, is written right there. The Advent season and Christmas Day itself is a celebration of that significant time when the creator, the agent of creation, actually takes on flesh. The pre-existent word of God becomes flesh in order to dwell among us. As the gospel writer John proclaims, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. To us, Christmas is much more than a cultural event or a holiday. Its greatness and beauty goes beyond our family gatherings, although that is great. It goes beyond the goodwill and generosity that's extended throughout, and that is certainly great. It goes beyond our singing and our feasting. Christmas is the genesis of Christianity, and it is at the very center of who you and I are. More than likely, you are familiar with the narrative as I am. I have read the Gospels, I don't know how many times, countless times, and you probably have as well. I've documented 67 messages at this church alone on Christmas so this narrative is very familiar to all of us. If you've been around very long, you know the narrative of Christmas. Yet, if you're like me, you're drawn into it. You, you can't read it without being drawn into its message. You know the details of the message, but man, it just draws you back over and over again because it's filled with such truth and hope-filled messages. The, work, the Christmas narrative never grows stale, does it? Kay and I often have time and opportunity to meet Hayden and Madison over in 
trustful or springful or ashful or somewhere around in that area for the drop-off uh, where we meet up to get grandkids. And uh, as we do that, it's with excitement that we know the boys are going to spend the night with us. And we navigate back towards Etowah County and Pierce, who is uh, just under three years old, he knows the way. I'm pretty certain even at his age, he could navigate us all the way home. You know, he's the first grand, so he's the genius grand, as you probably have experienced. As we come close to the steel exit, he'll tell us, right there, right there. And when we get up to the top of the exit, he'll tell us to turn right. And then when we go all the way down to the T and we have to turn left on Rainbow Drive, right there, right there, Ray Ray. And then as we turn towards Watson and then into our neighborhood, he's telling us all along the way, right there, right there. Until we get to the top of the hill. And when we get to the top of the hill, he sees our house there it is. And he'll proclaim that over and over and over. It doesn't matter where we're going. We could go to the store. We could go to a restaurant. We could come to church. We could even get in the golf cart and just go around the neighborhood. And when we top the hill and he sees the house every single time, right there, there it is. He will point it out to us as if he's not seen it or we've not seen it ourselves. And I really hope that that kid always has that kind of excitement when he sees our house. I hope it doesn't grow old to him. Now, for you grandparents who are seasoned and you've got teenagers as grandparents, don't tell me that this idyllic moment that we're having with our two-and-a-half-year-old is going to change. I know it probably will, but for now, we're just going to live in this moment of there it is. It's that moment that I want us to always have when we come to the gospel. Where we just don't grow tired of it. It's new, it's fresh, it's exciting. It has adventures for us as we're turning the pages. It's like for the first time we're reading the truths. There it is. There it is. And so I want to draw you back to three simple truths in this narrative. Maybe some you've kind of let slip past you, but with freshness, I want us to put our eyes on it again. First of all, I want to talk about the scandalous surprise of the events of Christmas. And then I want to talk about the righteous man because in Matthew, he is giving us the narrative, um, and a lot of it is from Joseph's perspective, and that's an interesting way to look at it. And then finally, I want to just point out the significance of the splendid presence of God with us and what that means that the Savior has been born. So first, this scandalous surprise of the events. Now, more than likely, Joseph and Mary's parents have prearranged their, their wedding, their, their time together. That was very common in biblical days to do so. And, and I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of prearranging our kids' marriages. I kind of like the idea. In fact, I'm fairly certain that Kay's family and my family prearranged our marriage. 
Because we went to church nursery together in the preschool department. We were together. Our families vacationed together. We lived in the same communities together. We shared a garden together. Went to school together. Went to church together. There was not a time in my life that we were not together. And I remember Kay's mom, particularly, and her dad as well, cheering me on as I was convincing her to drop her deadbeat boyfriend. And... (laughs) I should quit saying that because there's a family who is connected to him relationally. Uh, At any rate, they were cheering me on that she would alter her course. And so at 18, I asked her out. And not very long after that, I proposed marriage to her. And by the age of 20, I was marrying that woman. You say, well, that's, uh, that's kind of a fast-track relationship. Oh, no, not when your parents prearranged the marriage when you were babies. There's no fast-track to that at all. But seriously, the way it happened in biblical times is somewhat different. The prearrangement was very real. In fact, Joseph and Mary's parents probably agreed that their kids would be married, and they made that agreement at a young age, the dads getting together and saying, let's arrange this. And when they arranged the marriage that would take place sometime in the future, the couple then was engaged. The engagement happened by two dads getting together and putting this purposefulness in mind, putting it ahead. This is what's going to happen. So as the kids are growing, they are engaged to one another. And when it comes time for the ceremony and then the consummation of that marriage to come together, about a year before that was a betrothal period. Now, the negotiations had already been settled. The bride price had already been determined. It was understood what the groom's family would have to pay in order for the daughter to be given to that young man in marriage. And then the ratification of that, the payment of that agreement would happen at the conclusion of the betrothal period. And then there was a huge celebration. You know, it would last about a week in the Jewish culture. The ceremony would take place and then the consummation of the the wedding, uh, the marriage itself. Now, Joseph and Mary were in this process. They were in the agreement process where all the terms had been agreed on by the family. Joseph was preparing along with his family to make payment during the betrothal period. Now, when you get into that period where it's ratified and monies are being exchanged and houses are being built or rooms are being added to the family home and there's there's real involvement in that there's no going back in that betrothal period in fact it was so certain that they were actually called husband and wife they're not married they're not sleeping together they're they're far more chaste than that but they are in the period of the betrothal. And in that period, you actually had to have a certificate of divorce to get out of the agreement that had already been made and the payments that had already been given. So it's a big deal, right? There's a lot to this. And so when we find a young woman like Mary in an engagement period, there's room, there's wiggle room. You can actually change your mind in an engagement, but not in the betrothal. 
for Joseph, there's, there's room. If he finds out that that woman has been unfaithful, that she has given up her purity, and she, doesn't, she is not able to offer that to him on the night of their wedding, then he could actually back out during the engagement period. But there's no backing out during a betrothal. There would have to be a certificate of divorce, and there would have to be biblical grounds for that divorce to be given. It's during that betrothal period that this couple finds themselves in a scandal because she's pregnant. That alone would be a scandal in that day. But the fact that Joseph knows that he is not the father and the one he's betrothed to is now pregnant, that's a scandal. Now, a scandal doesn't have to be factual, does it? Everything surrounding the scandal could be scandalous and it not even be true. But there's truth in this one. There's undenying she's pregnant. She's with child. And Joseph is wondering about that. He's, he's complexed. He's troubled. He's heartbroken. Mary is with child. And Joseph knows, I am not the father of that child. Now, that situation would be scandalous, except... God has given us a detail that makes the scandal go away. Joseph perceived that Mary must have been physical with somebody. She must be in a relationship that he did not know about with somebody in order for her to be pregnant. But what he did not know is that the Holy Spirit had conceived the child in the virgin's womb. I like reading Douglas O'Donnell in his commentaries and in his commentary I appreciated the way that he wrote about this section he said there's one phrase that de-scandalizes the entire scene and it's in this idea that the Holy Spirit has conceived the child in fact if you remove that phrase from the scripture you can see exactly what Joseph must have been thinking. I put it on the screen for you, just blacked out. I, I know it's awkward for me to black out a, and uh, strike out a line of Scripture, but let's do this for a moment just to get what I'm talking about with Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child, and her husband Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, you take out that section from the Holy Spirit, and there is really a scandal to be had there. There's ground for divorce there. But because you have the miraculous that has been communicated to us, the Holy Spirit is involved. It takes the scandal and throws it right out the window. And what Joseph was so heartbroken over, what he was so grieved about, what he was so disturbed by and horrified and shocked by was actually the cause of his rejoicing because it would be the way his soul would be saved. What an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is at work, great things happen. Wondrous things happen. Miraculous things happen. And that's exactly what Joseph was figuring out. Because God told him, though no one saw the active work of the Holy Spirit, was he ever active? Could I just remind us in this moment that the Holy Spirit is always active? 
He is always active. There might be a day in the future that he will illuminate what he has been doing in your life. But you may not know it right now. You may not know the details. You may not know the whys or the hows or the wheres or the whens. But the Holy Spirit is at work. And we're grateful for that. Luke chapter 1 gives us the understanding about what the Holy Spirit was doing. Gabriel, this messenger from heaven, said, Behold, to Mary you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There we find a great doctrine, don't we? The doctrine of God, that God is triune, that he is three persons in one Godhead. He is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. In other words, there is only one God, but there's three distinct persons of that God. And all three of them are engaged in the incarnation. The Father willed the Holy Spirit to make flesh for the pre-existent second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. What an amazing thing is happening at Christmas, that God is becoming flesh. And in that moment, we ought to all be whispering, there it is. There it is. Because it's just one of those truths that would just speak to you and encourage you and build you up with great confidence in God, your Father, in Jesus, your brother, and the Holy Spirit, your great comforter. There it is. Or the second thing that I wanted to draw your attention to is that in the midst of this is a righteous way of a man. Here, here's a man God is choosing to use because he is righteous, he is just, and he wants to demonstrate his work through such a man or alongside such a man. Now, now note the righteous ways of Joseph. It says in verse 19 of, of Matthew 1, Joseph was a just man unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, he's morally, ethnically upright. He's righteous. He's just, as the Scripture would say. But not knowing the role of the Holy Spirit, he is resolving to divorce her. In this betrothal period, he's going to divorce her, which means he is going to break the agreement because he believes that Mary has broken the agreement as well. And so he's going to put her away, divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly. According to the law of God, he could actually request execution. Publicly shame her, expose her for what he believes to be the sin in her life. He, he doesn't understand at that moment that the Holy Spirit has already been at work. He doesn't understand that this is a miraculous conception that Mary is still virgin. But in that moment, he is going to put her away justly so because he doesn't want the world to think that this is a relationship that has been immoral. He doesn't want to go ahead with the agreement knowing that she's in relationship potentially with another man. He's just. He's not going to put on this air. He's not going to act as if it's one thing when he knows it's another. So he's just determined to put her away in divorce quietly and not to bring her to public shame. 
So with love and compassion, he is deciding to do this quietly. He instead chooses to dissolve this marriage agreement and just move on. But Joseph was going to hear from God's messenger, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm doing here. You just stay the course. Joseph was really concerned about Mary's shame more than his own shame. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So Joseph is very quick to obey God, to obey the word of God, to respond. He didn't ask for an explanation. He didn't worry about what others are going to think or say. Instead, he hears God's word given by the messenger of God, and he does exactly what he's told to do. He recognized God was doing something big, and he was allowing me to be part of that. My job is just to obey him in it. And then the messenger said, call his name Jesus. Now, did you notice over in Luke Gabriel announced to Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. But here in Matthew, Joseph is instructed, you call his name Jesus. You know why? Because it would be the father who would name the child. The father naming the child meant, this is my son. He bears the name that I give him. And so in this simple moment of Joseph saying, his name is Jesus. He is saying to the world, this is my son. He belongs to me, and I declare his name Jesus. What a moment of obedience for this man who understands God is doing something, and he has invited me to be part of that, and I'm going to respond in obedience to him. His name shall be called Jesus. And when Joseph names him Jesus, I don't have time to really trail into this for uh, any length of time, but that name is a unique name given by Joseph, and it is Joseph who is a descendant of King David who is declaring him to be his son. And in that moment, prophecy is fulfilled that would not be if it had not come about exactly as Joseph did. All right, number three. You can't deny this wonderful moment of there it is when you think of the splendid presence of the Savior on earth. Because the earth has in, been in need of a Savior, its entire creative order. Since creation and mankind sinned against God and the curse of sin was infused throughout all of creation, we have been needing a Savior, longing for a Savior. In fact, all of creation was longing for that moment and is still longing for the completion of that when you and I will be glorified in Christ. Here, here's what Matthew says, Matthew 1, 21. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. She shall bear a son. Now, Joseph, as you know, is the earthly father, but Jesus was God's son. And that was very clear, made clear to Mary the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, 
This child shall be born, and you shall call him holy, for he is the Son of God. An everlasting truth given to us right there. Now, Joseph is understanding his limited role as the earthly father. It's a vital role, but he was not the biological father of Jesus. God was the father through the Holy Spirit. And if he was not, if it was any other way, the the whole gospel would just unravel. If Jesus was uh, the son, uh, the true son of Joseph, then that would mean that Jesus is not God. And if Jesus is not God, then the Bible is false. And if the Bible is false, you and I have no hope. We remain in our sin and God's judgment against us. But because it is as he says it is, then the gospel is true and you and I have great hope. Amazingly, the Holy Spirit has conceived and fashioned the flesh of the second person of the Trinity in the womb of Mary. What an amazing thought that is to meditate on and just kind of ruminate on and get all that truth that's available to us there. Mary delivered the Son of God in a very humble environment and then Joseph becomes his father figure here on earth, a carpenter raising him throughout his life. And of course, his name is Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Jesus, by the way, is a very common name among the Jewish people. It's uh, the same expression is given in, in its original form, Yeshua, Joshua. It means God saves, Yahweh saves, or God is Savior. God is salvation. It's, it's that concept that our salvation belongs in God. And every time somebody named Joshua is mentioned or Jesus is mentioned, it was a reminder to all who are listening that God is the Savior, that Yahweh is saving people. And it was like that for Jesus when he was young. I can imagine people thinking, oh, what a, what a great name for him is a reminder to the world that God saves. But it was different. It wasn't just a reminder when Jesus' name is mentioned. It was Jesus who is the Savior of the world. What a glorious name that is. That's the reason why when we utter the name Jesus and when we sing it and we call it out in prayer, it's so impacting to us, so meaningful to us, because he is our Savior. He saves the people of sins from our sins. Peter said regarding him, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're coming to a point of salvation, you will come through the door of salvation who is Jesus himself. There's no other way. So Jesus saves people from their sin. By the way, this is the first time in the gospel narrative that sin is mentioned. This is the first time that it's recorded. It's the word harmatia, which means missing the mark. What he's saying there is that God has prescribed exactly how creation ought to be. And God has made us in his image, given us the means by which we can commune with him and him with us. And he's declared what we ought to be and how we ought to be. And yet we miss the mark. That's sin. Jesus has come to save us from that. 
save us from our sin, save us from our rebellious ways. As a result, uh, we are in new life with God through him. So blessed be the name of the Lord that Jesus is our Savior. And so when we read the narrative of the gospel, when we look at it in Luke's perspective or in Matthew's perspective as we have this morning, though it may be seasoned in your mind, it ought to be we say, there it is. There's the great truth. There's the genesis of our new life. There's the beginnings of Christianity. What a great message of hope that God is with us, that God has come to save us. Christmas is so marvelous, isn't it? It's truth so deep and so broad and so wide that it ought to be that we celebrate it every day of our lives. And would you pray with me? Lord, as we have reflected on Jesus, our living hope, as we marvel at all that you did to bring it about in its miraculous way, in the way that there would be one born of woman yet without sin, without the Adamic sin passing along, that he might be the righteous one, the one who preexisted but yet came into the created world as one who was born in the flesh, We just rejoice that you made such effort to bring about our salvation and save us of our sins. Our faith and our confidence and our hope is grounded in this truth and certainly grounded in Jesus. It may be, Lord, that you have wanted the reminder for those of us who have trusted in you that we might rejoice and give you praise and worship, rightfully so, to acknowledge your glory. Or it might be that some in this room or watching on our streaming services or listening on the radio, some you may be drawing into a relationship by faith. And Lord, may they understand the depth of love that you have extended to them by bringing your son to them that he might free them and rescue them from their sins. Lord, I pray as they trust in you and give themselves to you, forsake all others in order to follow you, that your grace would be abounding, that your salvation would be evident in the transformation of life. We bless you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.